Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dina Verley, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. I love being in the studio. We made, uh, we're in now studio two. Not that John would know that. Uh, our special guest today is John Walmsley from Cumberland, Rhode Island, or our audience, because I mean, the studio looks the same no matter what. But as I was telling John beforehand, I was making some adjustments to the mic and to the camera because we just moved things into a new studio. So we're excited to be back in the studio in our new studio, which uh, lays out better for us here on the recording side. But uh, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast, John. Thank you, Dino. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you on as we were talking before we hit record. Um, you know, it's giving you a history of the podcast. And th this has really been uh, something that I never envisioned. I mean, I guess I did because I'm a big dreamer that, you know, four years into this, you know, we would still be doing the podcast. Um, you know, it, it, it always brings me so much joy to be able to share survivor stories and fighter stories. And, and you're one of our survivors and fighters in the pancreatic cancer community. So I always get excited when we bring them on uh, because this is what we do. This is why we come to work every day uh, here at Project Purple and so many other like-minded groups in the pancreatic cancer space. But, you know, as, as you and I were talking off, off air uh, before hitting record here on both YouTube, um, on video, and then here in the, in the studio for the audio portion for the podcast, you know, th this is why we need to do these things like the Project Purple podcast to bring stories of hope and inspiration like yourself. So I love when we bring survivors on it. It's probably been, um, really the most humbling and enlightening experience of the Project Purple podcast for me when we originally started this podcast. I thought we would, I always wanted to interview people of inspiration, but I never thought we would get the amount of survivors that we've gotten on the podcast. Um, so it's really an honor and it's really awesome to have you here today. As is complimentary and customary here on the Project Purple podcast, John, we always give our guests kind of the first segment after I stopped talking from the introduction. Um, we did meet via social media. I always say, you know, social media can be a really dark and ugly place, especially right now in the world, but I try to find the positive in it and stories of survivors and fighters and people that are in this space trying to raise as much awareness uh, for the disease. And that's how we kind of connected. So we're excited to have you here. Um, and as I said, the first part of this segment uh, of the podcast is really the guest opportunity to kind of share with our audience, both on video and also on audio here. Um, what brings you here today and a little bit about your journey with pancreatic cancer. And with that, John, the mic is yours. Yeah, thank you, Dino. And um, thank you for having me. And thank you for your audience for listening. Um, yes, I'm a pancreatic cancer survivor. Seven years now. It all started in 2015. Um, a lot has happened in seven years. And back when I was diagnosed, I, I really didn't having that much of an idea of what the pancreas was. I, and as far as cancer goes, I knew that if you got pancreatic cancer, that was not a good thing. There was just, that was just not a good thing. But I didn't research it because I didn't have it. So, and many people go about their lives and they hear stories of others who have been diagnosed with one form of cancer or another or an ailment of some sort. And you say, oh, that's too bad, and then they go on with their life. But if, you, if you're afflicted with something, you kind of like take a little bit more notice. And when I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it all started with um, fatigue. I wasn't feeling myself. I knew something was wrong. And I've always been a healthy individual. I've always been athletic. I've always been outside working. I've never had a desk job. I'm not overweight, didn't smoke. So when I was not feeling right, you know your body. And, and I knew there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. So I go to the doctor, and the doctor did the blood test. And nothing was conclusive. So he sent me for more blood work and an ultrasound. And while I was waiting for the ultrasound results, I turned yellow. Yellow. I was yellow skin and yellow eyes and which is why we went immediately to the um, 
the hospital where they get a CAT scan and that's how they detected it. So that's how it all started. And then I did, I started doing my research to find out what, what, what's pancreatic cancer. I knew it wasn't good, but now if I've got it, what do I do? So I wasn't about to just say, Oh, that's it. That's, I'm all done. I'm not like that. I'm a fighter. So I did my research and I looked up the Whipple procedure. I watched the actual operation on YouTube. I knew what they wanted to do. I was uh, tipped off to a, a surgeon in Boston at Mass General that had done multiple Whipple operations. And that was what I, from what I read was key. You had to get somebody who has done it multiple times at a hospital that has done it multiple times. So I did make arrangements with my doctor to send me up to Boston. And within a few weeks, I was um, under the knife. So um, what I liked about it up there, and I'm not, I'm not disparaging Rhode Island or any other hospitals anywhere, and they all kind of operate on this, in the same way. It's a team. When you meet, meet with a team, you have your surgeon, your oncologist, and the radiologist. And when the team gets together, and it's comforting from a patient perspective to hear doctors talking about you together. All, they're all in the same room with you, and they're talking about what you have and how we're going to go about tackling it. Now, I was told that um, well, you're very fortunate. You're you're eligible for the Whipple surgery, which, of course, back then I didn't know what that was, and I don't know how in the same breath somebody can say you've got pancreatic cancer, but you're lucky. <laughs> so that that didn't you know that doesn't compute. Now, after realizing and and learning about this particular cancer, if you're lucky to have that. Whipple surgery, that means there's a good chance you can be cured. Now, in the seven years, when back then, if, if the tumor was involved with the main vein and artery that goes up and down your spine, it's like, well, you're, you're out of luck because you can't cut that, you know, and all. They've made a lot of um, progress in cancer uh, treatment with chemo that will shrink that tumor away from that main vein and artery so that they can resect the, the tumor and continue with the radiation and uh, the chemo and radiation. And you can heal and become one again with yourself. Um, as, I am a survivor. And when somebody says, oh you, oh, you survived pancreatic cancer, it's not like I'm in a bed somewhere laid up. I survived it, but I'm living my life. I'm back. It took a while. It's not an easy thing. It took a a long, at least a year to get back to where I felt myself. But you can survive pancreatic cancer. And that's the word that we need to get out there, that early detection is important, but you can survive it. And early detection is Part of the reason that we try to raise money with PanCan, which is a great organization, and I raise a lot of money for PanCan, and the money goes to research and doctors and scientists. And without their research, then you're going to be you're going to be stagnant. But with their research and with the funding. Hopefully, we'll get to a mammogram or a colonoscopy or a, a test like that for pancreatic cancer. And that, that is the, the, the short-term goal. That that's what everybody's looking at trying to do. And raising money, everybody's trying to raise money for every, every cancer. And we all need money. We all need research. And... There's only so much money to go around, so you have to keep asking and asking and asking. And nobody likes to ask for money. I'm not asking for myself. I survive. The money that I'm raising 
is for, well, you or the next person in line or the next person to be diagnosed and it, it will benefit them. So, you know, that's kind of like my, uh, my story in a nutshell. And it's not easy. You know, chemo of any sort is just, it's terrible. And you're in bed and you're, you feel like you're never going to make it. But you have to be positive. You have to, your mind is an important part of this whole thing. You can, you can go down or you can go up depending on how you think. So be positive, everybody out there. It's powerful stuff, John. I, I want to take a, take it back a bit. I got a couple questions here that just came up from sharing your background and thank you for doing that. Um, you mentioned you were fatigued and naturally turned yellow. And, and I know this is, you know, this is what I love about sharing these stories because everyone's symptoms are different. And that's, I think some of, some of the like frustration within the awareness, you know, within the community, I should say, because I know for many people, they don't get fatigued. They don't turn yellow. They have different types of signs and symptoms, abdominal pain. We've had people on, they didn't have any pain. They had weird bowel movements. Yeah. We've had people that have come on that we had a guest that they got into a car accident and then they happened to do like an abdominal scan and they saw they had a tumor on their pancreas, right? We've, we've we probably have heard many stories similarly to that, right? And hindsight's always twenty twenty. Uh, I'll preface that here with this question. But if you look back, were there signs beforehand that maybe, again, hindsight being 2020, that you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so now that you know, have you ever kind of looked back and go, oh yeah, like scratch my head, like, yeah, there was that one time where, you know, uh, I had that abdominal pain or, you know, I, I was going to the bathroom. I just have it. It was just like irregular, you know, for, for a while, but didn't think anything of it at the time because of something else in your life, stress, change of job, or like you said, you were super active. So, you know, maybe the lower back pain because you were, you know, being so active and you had this pain and you just kind of warded off as just normal, you know, movement pain. Like my dad was a contractor. He always was in pain, right? Cause he's always moving stuff. Yeah, no, I can say no. I had no uh, thoughts of, Oh, there was that one time. No, but I was my neighbor unfortunately passed away from pancreatic cancer about wow. six years before me before I was diagnosed. Now, it all has to do with where the the tumor is located in the yep. pancreas. In the tail of the pancreas, the middle of the pancreas, the tumor can grow and grow and grow, and it doesn't affect anything. So, as was the case with my neighbor, it was at the toward the tail of the pancreas, and it grew, and his symptom was back pain. Mm -hmm. Now, like you said about your father and myself and many, 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 many people, we all have back pain. If you get back pain, you don't think you have pancreatic pain. No. So it grows until it's so big that it metastasizes. And when he finally went, it was because the pain was so great that he couldn't scan it anymore. That's when he had the CAT scan and they basically, you know, told him to get his affairs in order. Because it's just too, too big, too late, too far gone. But I, I'm a lucky guy. I, I was lucky. It was at the head of the pancreas where it can affect something, the bile duct, which yeah. is why you turn yellow. It pinches on the bile duct, the bile backs up and you turn yellow. So that's kind of a good thing. But, and I asked my doctor, my, my, general practitioner, I said, well, and I was 61, or no, I was 63 when this all went down. And um, so I said, well, why, when you turn 60, why can't you just go get a CAT scan? And that seems like a simple question, but the answer is not simple. There's a lot of false positives. There's a lot of complications that you would go through for no reason at all because of a, you know, it's not just about the money where the insurance companies don't want to pay for the, the scan. 
It's a, yeah. it's a complicated thing. If yeah, it was easy, it would have been fixed a long time ago. Yeah. I, I, I think partly, yes, you, you're absolutely correct. Right. And so I think, and that's the frustrating thing, right? Like, so we, we have diagnostic imaging, either an MRI or like you said, like a CAT scan, but the challenging piece is like, so to put the entire population through that, you're going to get a lot of false positives. Right. Um, and there's a lot of things that, you know, there's, there's like the, the pros and cons, right? And the, the risk benefit, right? There's always a risk in any type of procedure, right? So, you know, there's that, but then there's also the risk benefit in like, does it make sense, you know, like with these false positives, you could have like hemangiomas, which are just like fatty tumors that, you know, would be seen in a lot of imaging on livers, on pancreas that, you know, people potentially then would do more procedures and then what's the risk reward there, right? Like you could, I, I know this doesn't happen often, but you know, people, you know, have hemangiomas or sometimes they do the needle biopsies on the pancreas. And what happens is for, you know, there's always risk reward. People get pancreatitis that way, right? Because they have a bad needle biopsy and, and they get an inflamed pancreas and that that becomes a real issue, right? So I, I think I completely agree with you that, that that's really, it's really a trick to manage that because like, yeah, we have some stuff that on, on the surface would seem like, hey, this is like a no brainer, just put everyone through testing. And I think at some point, maybe a couple of years back, I think that that was an idea, right? Give everyone an MRI. But then, you know, I, I think part of it was insurance, right? Because it, it, it's, a, it's a cost. There's a big cost to that. And then the other part was risk and reward. Does it really make sense to do that? Um, something that you brought up um, or that you didn't bring up was, um, and I know 2015, and I know you brought up that, hey, a lot has changed. And the one thing that really has been really positive for the space is genetics, so I imagine in 2015, genetics, well, maybe at M MGH. MGH is one of the top centers on the on the East Coast for pancreatic cancer. They've got a wonderful team. And we're going to talk about that in a second because I have a note here to, to ask you a question on that. But did you have genetic testing done then or have you had genetic testing up until this point? I did not then, but I have now. I went just this past winter. And so what they do with the genetic testing is they test approximately 90-something genes, yep. including the BRCA gene. And then there are 20, I think 20 specific genes that are associated with pancreatic cancer, but 90 altogether. You can either be negative, positive, or inconclusive. So my test results came back negative. It's positive. So, so I still got it, but I was not, I did not have a mutant gene or some kind of a gene yeah. that was leading me toward that. So with that, with the results, I can tell my children that, well, you got a 50-50 shot that you won't get it. I don't know about mom. You know, yeah. she was tested. And I can tell my brother and my sister, hey, looks good for you because I tested negative. So chances yeah. are you will. Too. That's got to be a huge relief. I mean, we do know, you know, here in the States, about 10% of the cases are from some sort of genetic mutation. So knowing that you actually have two wins here, John, you got diagnosed early and also that you didn't have a genetic marker so that it's not passed on to loved ones or siblings. Uh, so you've got a, the, the double win there with that. Um, I, I want to go back to MGH. How did you decide? Now you live in Cumberland, which for those folks who are listening or watching don't know geography or don't know New England geography. I, I went to school in Rhode Island. I'm laughing here because I don't want to offend you, John, but you know, Rhode Island's such a small state. You can drive from one end to the other end in like 45 minutes, maybe do it in a half hour if you're if you got you know, if you're that risky and you're gonna do like 80 miles an hour, which most people do in New England anyways, as long as there's no cops on the road. But Rhode Island's a pretty small state. Um so what what was kind of the tipping point or how did you get to MGH? I mean, I always say we have really good, I mean, 2015 wasn't that long ago. We have really good access to care in the sense of, you know, we deal with families in 
Western Nebraska that, you know, it takes them nine hours just to get to Omaha or, you know, a two hour plane ride. Whereas Rhode Island, you could be, you know, Cumberland, Rhode Island, you could be in Boston again, without traffic, like probably in an hour or less. Um, but what was really, how did you get up there? Did you do your own research? Did someone get your referral? Like how did that whole process start? Well, it was, it's a unique kind of a story. When I was in, uh, I went to Mass, I mean, excuse me, I went to Winsocket Hospital, Landmark, or I forget what the, uh, the name of it is now, but to me, it's Winsocket Hospital. And that's just up the road. So we went there. That's where I had the CAT scan done. And then they had to have an endoscopy where they check it to confirm. Mm-hmm. And while this was going on, this was in January of 2015. And if you recall, we had snowstorm after snowstorm that year. And when I was in for the cats, the, when I had the CAT scan, they admitted me for the endoscopy. And then I was in there for three days because nobody could get in and out of the hospital because of the snow. While I was in there, I, on my tray was a note on a, like not a napkin, but just a piece of paper. And it, it said, this is the doctor you want to see in Boston. And that, and his name, and I, I, I suppose I can mention his name. Yeah. Yeah. His name was Dr. Carlos Fernandez del Castillo. We so know that, that name was, well. He's been mentioned yeah. multiple times on the podcast. Oh, yeah. So what I did is I looked up his name and what he did and what who he was. And because I was um, weary of this particular type of cancer and I had it, even though my doctor and some other doctors in the hospital suggested Rhode Island has a great cancer team. I, yeah, it's an hour away, but it's traffic. It's terrible. But I said, let me go with that. And that's how I got his name. And when I met up there with Dr. Carlos Fernandez Del Castillo and Dr. Hong, and at the time it was Dr. Farris. So those three people sat in the room with me. And again, going up to Boston for my, my initial consultation, another snowstorm. <laughs> I had my brother and my wife with me. So my brother's driving and we're driving up and we're stuck in traffic. We're stuck in the top of the tunnel for forever. I'm two hours late for my appointment. I get up onto Storrow Drive and we're in traffic. Just stop. So I got out of the car. I walked down Storrow. I went over the walk bridge to the hospital and I went in and met. And it took my brother an hour and a half to go around the corner to the parking lot. So it was that crazy year with every, you know, there's, your mind is going crazy because yeah. of what you have and all this other stuff is going on. So it, it was kind of a unique story that bring me, that brought me up to Boston. That's, uh, you know, I remember that winter and to hear you tell that story, but also Again, geography-wise, Woonsocket and Cumberland is kind of like the snow belt of New England along with Worcester. Yeah. It seems like you guys always, you know, we get like two inches here in Southern Connecticut. Yeah. You guys get three feet. Uh, yeah. So, you know, whenever it snows, that whole area gets socked in. But it's just wild hearing you tell that story. I remember that winter. But then also the, the things you had to do to get to the doctor, right? Yeah. Like it, it's just wild and, and, and you know, not distance wise, but in the middle of a freaking blizzard, right? Like, you know, it's just wild. So you have the surgery up there and then, so you do the Whipple. Do you remember if you did chemo beforehand or did they go right into surgery and then you did chemotherapy right after? We did. I went right into surgery and then the chemo was after. Now in seven years, they've changed that around. Yep. So they're finding that your body can tolerate the chemo a little bit better before you whack it with a major surgery. Yep. But also because certain cases you have to shrink that tumor down a little bit more. So you get the chemo first, but I did, I had my operation first, which it's, it's not fun. It was five and a half hours on the, on the table and then six days in the hospital. Mm. And, um, you know, 
surgery is not not a fun thing, but they want you to get up and walk. And if that's what they and I did what I was told, and throughout this whole thing, whatever people told me, that's what I I did it. I was obedient, and I would walk. I'd grab my my IV pole. And I'd walk up and down that hospital as much as I could the day after, even the day after the operation. But for six days, I, I did my best to keep myself moving, to eat whatever they, what I could. That was, eating is another thing. Everybody talks about what you can eat after and, and whatnot. It's, I'm kind of lucky it hasn't really been a big problem for me. I do have to take Creon to help with digestion and I have to be mindful of um, of uh, diabetes because if your pancreas is not making the insulin that it, it used to, you know, you have to be careful. But so far, so good. And I just went back to Boston in May last month and um, the doctors are very happy to see me when I come in. I mean, you can only imagine what they must, their jobs are dealing with pancreatic cancer patients who, for the most part, survival rate is 11% now. It was 5% when I was diagnosed. It's 11%. So we're going in the right direction, but still 11% is a terrible number. And they deal with people who pass away a lot. And when they see somebody like me come in, they hug me. Yeah, they love me. And he told me this time, he said, your blood work is the best it's ever been. Wow. So... I'm a lucky guy. And all of these things we were talking about, you know, distance and traveling to a hospital and stuff. And you mentioned, well, let's say you're in Montana or, yeah. or someplace that's remote. And then if you think about pancreatic cancer, is just not the United States. It's all over the world to every yeah. human being. Well, how about if you're Ukrainian and you live in Ukraine? And you get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer while they're bombing your house. I mean, there's somebody else that's always in a tougher spot than you are. And you just have to be thankful. But no matter what happens to you, you have to be thankful. It's powerful. Uh, you hit the nail right on the head um, because I, I think they're, you know, I, I've said this here with us, like living in the area we live as we were saying, inflation before, you know, just the, the the fact that things are so expensive, but we do have access to really quality care. Like you said, an hour away, you, you got some of the best, you know, Dr. Fernandez is probably one of the best surgeons in the world. And that's probably hard to debate that he's not really, really hard. I mean, he's, you know, there's probably like five people that if you brought, you know, 30 of the top researchers, oncologists, surgeons, um, he'd probably be top five on everyone's list. Uh, so to get access to someone like that an hour away, is it worth it? Absolutely. Right. Yes. Um, I, I, so just to go back, so you did the chemo and now you mentioned the scan. So everything's good. You, now you're going, I, I know at some point they go from six months to a year. So are you on a yearly basis with scans now? No. What, what it was is every three months you went to the doctor, every six months you had a CAT scan for the first five years. Yep. After the five-year period, no more CAT scans. Oh. Once a year I go to the house to Boston now. So that's my case. And as you were saying earlier, everybody's different. Yeah. So in my particular case, that's how it now, I did have the chemo, but then I had radiation, too, so with oh, okay. another chemo. I had a big pump. I had the port, and the chemo pump was 24 hours a day for five and a half weeks, and I had to drive to Boston every day, and I did it myself. I drove up, Wow! and you get that radiation shot, and the first one, I said, well, I can tolerate this. This is The worst part about this is the drive, yeah. you know? It only takes five, ten, not even ten minutes. They zap you and you're gone. But what what happens, and for those who don't know, it's cumulative. So they're shooting you with that beam of radiation. And the first day, no problem. The second day, no problem. You know, but at the end of five and a half weeks, 
you know, it's, it kills you. It's killed everything in you, you know, yeah. the chemo, the radiation, everything. It just whacks you so hard. But I guess they want to make sure that any cancer cells, any, are going to get blasted. So I guess in my case, it worked. So uh, on that note, John, and I do want to bring something up here in a second, um, because I know you've done some stuff with, uh, with music. That's been kind of a big part of your, your story here and survival. But if you look back in hindsight, again, as always 2020 during that time, you said like, wow, like, you know, first couple of days, easy peasy drive myself. And then, you know, cumulatively it gets harder and harder. Were there things that you could say to our audience here that got you through that time? I know you've talked a lot about mindset, you know, staying positive, but were there books, were there people, um, were there routines, were there maybe remedies that you were, you know, doing at home that, you know, weren't necessarily prescribed or something over the counter? Like what, what, what kind of helped you get through that time? Because it sounds like hell. And, yeah, and, and, it, it is. You know, for yeah, our audience, I, it is hell. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. And I wouldn't want to sugarcoat it. You know, I I have had the opportunity to talk to other people who have been newly diagnosed. Matter of fact, three people in the last month have called me. And two of them were stage two or two B, like like I was. And it's just that they're they're nervous and they're they're afraid and they don't know what's gonna happen. And they they, they it's just nerve-wracking and i wish that you know seven years ago i had somebody i could have called and said hey what's it going to be like you know what happens and so when i talk to them and especially if they see me they see that i'm not just some guy that's laying in the bed over there alive i'm living and i'm doing my my thing and so i think they're encouraged when they get to meet me and talk to me and i like I say, I don't sugarcoat it. It's not easy. And you're not, and you're going to feel like you can't make it at times, but you have to be positive. You have to do what you're told and you have to fight. But the main thing that got me through is friends and family and faith. I have, a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm, I'm a strong believer. And I, and I do believe, um, that the prayers, of all of the people in church who were praying for me, help. I also believe that my friends love me. My family loves me. I, there's just so much to live for that you can't give up. You can't give up and disappoint everyone. So that's the main thing. As far as reading, I read everything I could get my hands on about pancreatic cancer, about diet for pancreatic cancer, about exercise for pancreatic cancer, what to do if you're sick, what to do that I read anything I could get my hands on because the only time I was comfortable is laying in a bed. So when I'm laying there, I was reading, reading and reading as much as I could. So um, music, I love my music and I, I, not right away, it was some couple few years after, I did write that, write a song called Wage Hope. And I'm not a songwriter per se. You know, I play the guitar and the piano and, you know, I sing. But I'm not really a songwriter. But I wanted to do something. And how do you write a song about pancreatic cancer? I mean, were you going to write a sad song about somebody passing away? I, I couldn't do that. But how do you write a happy song about pancreatic cancer? So I thought, and I thought about like a jingle. If I could do some kind of a promotional type of song. So that's how I, that's my thought process. And then the motto of Pan Can is wage hope. Mm -hmm. So instead of waging war, we're waging hope. And that's what I, I named the song Wage Hope and I recorded it. And that's. And, and that so, song was post, you kind of came out of recovery, out of the treatments and said, hey, this is what I want to do. Post treatments yeah, it was to a couple support. Of years after. Yeah, a couple of years after, after I started really feeling better, back to myself again and stuff. I just wanted to do something, and that's why I've been involved in the Rhode Island 
uh, Purple Stripe yep. uh, affiliate of PanCan. And I am on the National Pancreatic Cancer Survivors Council. So there's awesome. 10 of, well, there's 13 now. There's 13 people in the country. And we meet every month. Of course, it's online. And um, we, we, we try to get people uh, to talk to us and stuff. And I love talk. I feel that's my mission now is to talk to people who are diagnosed. But it's a difficult thing to do because I can't call the hospital and say, hey, can you give me the name and number of all yeah. the people that get sick with cancer? Yeah. You know, medical records are what they are. But when people hear of me through things like what you're doing in your podcast or from the Channel 12, they did a, an article about me before Purple Stride this year and they played the song and that was kind of like the hook because I know as I'm sitting here talking to you, you've had many, many, many other survivors doing the same thing. And for the most part, we're all talking, saying the same thing. You know, I mean, to yeah. a degree, we're all saying the same thing. But none of us have the answer. We don't have a cure. We don't, we can't tell you, oh, this is how I did it. And if you do this, you'll survive too. You can't do that. But to reach out to people, that seems like that's my mission now. And to raise money for research, that's my mission. So that's what I'm putting my efforts into, those two things. I love it. I got a couple questions left here for you. And the first one um, is one that we get asked often. And and you just brought something up, um, you know, when, when I asked you about... Um, you know, what got you through that time when you were going through your treatments and, and you mentioned faith, family, and friends. A lot of times, and I'm going to give you some back story to the question here. A lot of times we get calls here or I get texts. I, people reach out because they know who I am and what I do. And it goes, Hey, my neighbor just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. What's the best thing I can do for him? Or coworker, you know, just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. What's the best thing I can do for him? And I pose the question to you here, John, and, and have done this to other survivors because I think this is critical, is what is the best thing a friend can do? And in this case, maybe if you want to give an example that did for you, that was really helpful during that time. And the reason I ask this question is I think people don't know. People don't know how to react. And sometimes you get all sorts of reactions, right? You get people that stray. And then you get people, I say, like, you know, they 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 become overbearing, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, and they're all well-intentioned um, without asking the person, like, what do you need? So I, I think this is this is always a, a critical question that we like asking survivors. Like, what was the best thing your friend did for you during that time? Because I think it's helpful for our audience to hear, because if they have a situation, then maybe they know or they have some idea what to do. Well, I'll tell you that the first thing that happened when I was diagnosed is a friend of mine came over with a bag full of information from PanCan. That's the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, because my buddy's wife's sister-in-law passed away from being pancreatic cancer. So they were very familiar with it and they knew about pancan. I'd never heard of it. Of course you, you wouldn't, you know. Yeah. So I, what I would say to anyone who knows somebody who was diagnosed or has been diagnosed is contact pancan. Their biggest thing right now is patient services. Mm -hmm. They will, they will go one on one with you and they will help you and walk you through everything. They'll answer questions. They'll refer you. They'll give you, go, they'll direct you to genetic testing. All of the things associated with pancreatic cancer are, they emanate from pancreatic, pancreatic cancer action network. I can't say enough about the people at that particular organization. Friends that come over, and I think your question was, what can they do? Uh, what do they say to you? Now, 
it's like anything else. There's no magic. This is what to say or what don't say. You can always stumble and say the wrong thing that will not offend, but will make people think, oh, boy, I'm really in trouble now. I got this cancer here because of what he said or she said. Mm-hmm. So there's really no magic um, thing to say. Uh, what I tell people that ask me about going through the Whipple surgery, because if they're going to go and have this surgery, they're, they're concerned about, well, well they, they're just nervous. They don't know what to do. And I, I just tell them, bring stuff to read, bring, bring your earphones and listen to podcasts. Get as much information as you can about the disease so that you have the ammunition to help you fight it. Um, you know, religion and politics are two things that I really don't get. I have my own views on both. And I, I like I say, I go to church every week. I'm part of the music ministry at church. I've been involved with them for over 30 years. There, there's an awful lot of people that would come up to me and say, I was praying for you. I was praying for you. And I do believe that helps and that that's that's important. But I can't say enough about pain care. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Uh next question here. Let's say someone listening to this podcast was just diagnosed today. Given what you've experienced, what you've gone through in your journey, what would be your advice to them? And it doesn't necessarily have to be one thing. It could be a couple things. The number one thing is positivity. Don't believe that pancreatic cancer is a death sentence. Don't believe that. Now, when you look at the numbers and you say 11% survive, well, how about that other percentage that don't? That's reality. There is, I'm not telling you that if you get pancreatic cancer, you are going to survive. I can't say that. You know, I wish I could. I wish the doctors could. And they wish they could. But you have to. I'll give you a quick example of a, of a research thing that I read. They always do a test group. And you always have the group that has the placebo. And, oh, this one, this is just one test, but of this test group, the, the group that received the placebo, 70% of them said they felt better. They knew they were taking something. They didn't know if they had the placebo or the real medicine, and their mind told them that they're getting better. Yeah. Your mind is very powerful. So... If you are diagnosed, number one, don't, all right, get, don't lose it. Get yourself together. Find as much information as you can out and get your mind straight so that you're going to be positive. And then contact PanCan and then do what the, the, the professionals tell you to do. And always, always, always be positive, always. Even if they say it doesn't look good, that doesn't matter. Now you go for the clinical trial or you go for the treat, the, the oddball treatment, whatever, but never give up. Yeah. It's such a powerful statement that you just made there. And I think we, we've talked a little bit about this and I think you, you, you mentioned this, you know, the 11% survival, but you know, John, no one and no doctor, and this is where I think, you know, the system is what it is. And I think the system fails a lot of families. And I think part of where the system fails is, and I get it because we are trying to raise a lot of money and we are trying to raise awareness. And I think we do in this space, and I say we, I I guess I'm speaking for the whole space. We do harp a lot on the 11% which is important, right? Because that's the reality of it. But you know what we don't do a good job of? And I think John is like, you can be 11%. Someone listening can be 11%. You know, and I I think doctors fail a bit because I I think, you know, 
whether it's personalities, um, you know, I've been really strong because of my own personal experience, like the first oncologist that dealt with my dad and my dad had a very similar situation to you. He was, we, he was like 2A or 2B and was a Whipple candidate. We probably didn't have a good surgeon, hindsight being 2020. I would have brought him up to Mass General, but we didn't. Um, we stayed local at a small uh, community hospital and the guy said, oh, I do a lot of Whipples. He does 12 a year. I said, how many is a lot? He goes, I do like one a month. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that's not a lot. Uh, it's easy to, to joke about now, but you know, the the first oncologist told my told my dad and and my mom and I and my brother at the time, like after the surgery and when the cancer came back, he was like, "Hey, get your affairs in order," you know. And, and I know there's like, I, you know, there's a sense of reality, but also no one knows. So there's nothing in, there, to your point of being positive and having that mindset, I think we do a poor job of, hey, you could be the 11%. You could be the survivor. You're not the other end. You know, you're not the 89%. Like, and, and, but doctors don't know that. Awareness groups don't know that. Patients don't know that. So why not strive and have that mindset that you're going to be the 11%? Yep. You have to advocate for yourself. You have to believe in that you can be. It's all positivity. You have yeah. to be positive. Yeah, it's so powerful. So powerful. John, my last question here uh, is always a loaded question. There's no right or wrong to it. How do you, in your experience and what you've gone through that you just explained here on the podcast and personally, how do you define the word pancreatic cancer? I would I would say it's an invader. It's it's something that gets inside of you and it's trying to kill you. So unfortunately, some people that that's a sneaky invader and they get in there and that thing will hide and and this goes for any kind of cancer, but pancreatic cancer because of the location on the pancreas. That's a difficult thing. That's a that's a tough invader. And if you if you have somebody invading your property or your house or whatever, and you know they're in the house somewhere, you know, you gotta try to get it out. You gotta try to get it out. And it's it's not an easy thing to do. Ugh, it's an invader. That's the way I would describe it. Powerful. John. If our audience at home listening or watching wants to connect with you or follow your story, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, you've know you done some stuff locally. You do a lot with PanCan on their survivor council, um, also doing advocacy uh, for the group there in Rhode Island. Where's the best place for people to connect with you? I'm not a big social media person. I have a Facebook account. I, I use it as a tool primarily because of pancreatic cancer. And uh, if, if you look me up on YouTube, you can find me doing that song and a few other things. But I, I'm, I'm willing to give my, um, my email address out if people want to connect to me. And it's J-O-N-C-I-N-W. J-O-N-C-I-N-W at hotmail.com. Um, we have, we're about to have another fundraiser on August 29th. We have a golf fundraiser at Lincoln Country Club here in Lincoln, Rhode Island. And that's August 29th. It's a Monday. If anybody plays golf and wants to participate, 100 bucks and you get lunch, dinner, 18 holes with a cot and entertainment. And yours truly is the entertainment. So <laughs> awesome. And awesome. Another thing too, we were talking about Dr. Fernandez del Castillo. If you go on YouTube and you look up Dream Team, Pancreatic Cancer Dream Team, I don't know if you've seen it, you know, but it's a it's a well done story about Dr. Hong, Dr. Fernandez, and the whole team up there at Mass General, and it, it's pretty entertaining and informative. It's it's worth a watch. They are uh, a phenomenal group. I. I have had we've had many podcast survivors that have gone through 
MGH and uh, have dealt with the team there. And um, someone really, really close, a, a very, uh, someone in my family recently over the last year uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Imagine the irony of that. Um, and went through MGH and is actually doing very well. So uh, I, I, when you brought the name up, when you said MGH, I was like, all right, I have a, I, I, I'm not a betting man, but, uh, I I'm sure the name's going to come up. So I, I'm ecstatic that you mentioned it. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of great doctors in the world. Um, but as I said, MGH has got one of the top centers on the East coast, quite possibly in the United States. So for those that live in new England, we are blessed to have, uh, so much, so much access to great, great, options um and in particular mgh being one of them so it's awesome john thank you for being a guest on the project purple podcast and sharing your journey with this thing called pancreatic cancer with our audience thank you dino it's a pleasure to be here i'm happy to be anywhere <laughs> i love it i love it Thank you for listening to another episode and watching the project purple podcast on youtube if you like what you hear or see today feel free to Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on our YouTube channel. Feel free to share this episode. And until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.